0: beginning, the end. So where to start? This is a journey into sound, brought to you in living color on
1: WTDI. How do you like
0: that? The fault, dear
1: Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves.
0: Good luck. We care about your world. My guest, returning again, is. Rick Halterman. He's a musician, photographer, jazz DJ, and author of Curriculum of the Soul. And he has a new book out now titled Luminescence of the Ordinary. So maybe we could start by what inspired the writing of this book for you? You know,
1: Tony, with all our conversations we've had previously, you know, the, the curriculum, the first book in a certain sense, I was thinking about it today, is a little bit over the top in terms of all the poetry, all of the quotes, that there wasn't really a whole lot to argue with or to challenge or whatever. But I, I, still, I still would welcome that if that would happen. This time I was trying to do something, a different approach, still using basically the perspective of one's soul eyes. And then make it into these little essays of approximately a 1,000 words each, and just look at the world as it showed up to me during, say, this last four or five year period, and see how that would come out. And I was hoping that maybe, and I don't know if it succeeded or not, and I can ask you whether it did for you, whether that would make it more accessible to people, because I think the curriculum, for some, was kind of overwhelming it wasn't one of those books that you really would read cover to cover it was really better just to either let it flop open wherever it happened to be or if you were really interested in a particular area say grief or anger or patience or forgiveness or something you could go right to those particular chapters this was a little more haphazard and i was kind of curious to see if it was going to be speaking to the moment or not so let me ask you that question how did it appear to you in relation to the previous one? Did it feel more accessible or or what was your impression?
0: I loved the first one. I thought it was a very comprehensive, like, curriculum of the soul. I thought the title was actually really appropriate. I loved the poetry and the photography in it. I thought they all complemented each other and made for a wonderful holistic package but i don't know that i'm the best judge to answer your question because that's that's the kind of stuff i enjoy reading i mean that's very accessible to me i don't find it to be over the top but you know reading your book and writing notes i was thinking about how this new book really does have a lot of musings on what's going on in the world during these crazy times we're living in And that made me wonder, or at least to want to ask you how you're doing in the midst of all of it, like with this pandemic madness, Trump no longer being in office, but actually seeming to have more influence than ever in ways. Yeah. And this kind of insane inbred politics on both sides of the aisle.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, as you know, in the new book, and just like in the first one, politics, at least from my sort of soul-centered point of view, is not a preoccupation. It's really more a representation of the ego-centered world. So first to, you know, I think there's a couple layers here of what you're asking. I think with the the new book, what I was really trying to illustrate in kind of a haphazard way was that this ego-centered world that's been created, that we live in, So many aspects of it we're watching within our lifetime collapsing. And this has to do with all the places where we used to put trust, moral authority, those sorts of things. And that would include everything from how we used to trust our teachers implicitly, trust our doctors, trust, say, lawyers, politicians, institutions you know whether it's religion things like that and as all this is collapsing it's like with a pandemic and i think with your interviews with dr musham you know she had really pointed out even though as much as this is where she still makes her living that she said it so succinctly we have a healthcare system that focuses on disease not on the patient and and i just would change the terms a little bit cuz all that's true it focuses on disease but not on wellness and so when we have a Overbearing situation like the pandemic, then of course the hospitals are all going to be maxed out and people are going to start quitting because it wasn't a very good paradigm to begin with. When you think about that and you think about all the collusion, you know, with pharmaceutical companies and all that kind of thing, it's like, well, but this really isn't about healthcare. This is really about you know the sort of we'll just keep trying to fix things and hope it works out okay. And in the process, there are people making billions and billions of dollars at the expense of other people's illness. And you know there's yet another collapse. So to get to the second part of your question, how am I doing with all this? And I think that was part of the point of the new book that is a luminescence of the ordinary. If one gets too embroiled from my perspective in these larger pictures, it's overwhelming you know just yesterday alone between the invasion in ukraine and then there was an interview with an insect biologist and he was talking about the decimation of the insect population worldwide and the kind of impact that's going to have on everything that is living in terms of you know animals humans all that that here like two more big hits you know cuz the over the overriding thing in my perspective is that It doesn't matter what happens to Ukraine politically, if we don't have a planet that we can inhabit that is inhabitable, then all these other issues go away. And it's almost there's a part of me like watching the news about Ukraine yesterday and there was a big sigh inside like, oh, gosh, here's the ego centered world rearing its ugly head again. And doing this old, you know, it's like I kept thinking of the Dalai Lama's quote where someone asked him why he didn't fight against the Chinese when they invaded Tibet. And, you know, the first part of his answer was war is obsolete, you know. And that's what I was feeling yesterday. It's like, are we really going back to this obsolescence to a place like this? So anyhow, the point of the new book is that if I think we pay too much attention to these larger things that... It's just overwhelming. You know, I don't know enough of the history, for instance, of Ukraine to really be able to speak about it in really a detailed way. And, you know, I don't know enough about the climate change thing, but I certainly know we're clearly heading in the wrong direction, that if we just stay on that level, I don't know how people would get through their days. I don't know how they'd even get to sleep or wake up in the morning. So it's like when my partner talks about you know, these things going on with the climate, I said, you know, the best we can do is act locally. Remember that old bumper sticker, Tonio, that said, um, what was it? It was like paying attention globally, but act locally. So here I was trying to do, like, and I'm not really a big fan of hope per se, because I think that's the ego centered world once again, that's looking for a very specific destination. And if that destination isn't reached, then we go back into despair. So I'm really thinking more in this other direction of how do we find these moments of whether, you know, it's luminescence, of sacredness, of beauty, of whatever, imagination, curiosity, in our everyday interactions with the world that's going to keep us going somehow, even in the midst of what appears to be overwhelming catastrophe. How does that sound to you?
0: Well that's my approach. Yeah. Because you know, I don't I don't have a cell phone, I don't watch television, I don't participate in social media. The closest thing I come to social media is email (laughs) and radio. Yeah. So I'm not getting bombarded by all this madness the way most people in our culture are. And when I think about how people like like in those rare moments where I'm exposed to a television set and all the commercials that are that they're bombarding us with continually and also watching the news on television it's it's just insane I mean it's it's coming from from a perspective that I don't experience and I don't participate in and when I do see it it strikes me as being really way over at the top in terms of being insane and no wonder the world is so crazy you know if everybody is taking all this stuff in you know on a daily basis and many people just constantly all day long like i i hear people talking about or writing about how people just spend their entire days flipping through their their cell phones yes and that totally boggles my mind how anybody can survive. I mean, to me, that seems soul-crushing.
1: Yes. I think you probably remember there's an essay in the new book called Data Deluge where I talk about this kind of thing that it's almost, I don't know, some people that are probably more cynical than myself would believe that there's this real kind of overt attempt to keep us distracted so that we can still be wonderful cogs in the machinery of capitalism and keeping an old paradigm, you know, basically on some kind of ventilation to, you know, to keep it going on and on when it's already kind of run its course. And, there, you know, it's a curious question here. This is a little tangent, Tonio, but I was wondering, it's like in relation to some previous interviews that you had recently, that did you have a sense of overwhelm when you were younger and growing up and on the streets of New York, and you really had to fend quite a bit for yourself, that you have ended up in this interesting place now where you have naturally used a great sense of discernment to keep some of this crazy world at bay so that you don't get lost in that world of distraction. Does that, I don't know if that resonates or not.
0: Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've chosen to live in Vermont as opposed to a city like i grew up in new york city the the city of cities and i've lived in other cities but uh i've chosen to live here in vermont and i love living here in vermont and i don't want to i'm not interested in going anywhere else anymore i yeah. find vermont to be a haven for the soul yes to use that terminology
1: yeah yeah and i and i know because i've seen a picture of your house where You are completely surrounded by nature, which is so beautiful.
0: And here, sitting at my desk, I'm looking out a big window, and it's snowing out. Mm. And I'm looking at trees coated with snow, with large snowflakes coming down pretty quickly, and it's lovely.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You know, I have a partner who grew up in California, and she now lives here, of course, in, in New Mexico, and she just keeps commenting when it does exactly what you're looking at now. She thinks it is absolute magic, and I completely agree with her.
0: And to get back to something you said earlier, you, you were talking about how it's like we're at the end, and there are various things that are pointing toward the end of things. I mean, there are all kinds of like the extinction of and disappearance of insects that our world depends upon, our food supply, and various other things that we may not even be aware of. Pollination of plants that are essential to our survival in other ways. Um, Just so many things. And one point in the book, you talk about some songs that were meaningful for you that got me thinking about some songs. And then a song that came up in relation to the end was The Doors. They have a song titled, The End. Yeah, You know, this is the end, my friend. And these days in our world, it seems as though many things are pointing towards the end, the pandemic, climate change, this war that's erupted that, who knows? It could take us to nuclear annihilation, it's hard to say how how crazy people might be. Um, there's the you know the crumbling of our nation into violent polarization, extinction of species, environmental degradation. It all seems to be calling out to us to, as you say in the book, to change or die. yeah, yeah, there's
1: there's that. And I think part of it, you know there's a lot, of course, a lot of great books out there that really get into the details. Of say you know whether it's the the trump white house or what's happening with the financial system you know all this sort of stuff but i was really more interested knowing that there is a paradigm collapse taking place which in in one sense can be despairing in another sense you know i have a friend who was talking about but she said oh but this is such a great opportunity you know i think there's been a shift that whether people want to jump on board or not is that in the old paradigm a lot of our responsibility was placed on those institutions, on those professions where we could trust. So we never had to take full responsibility. And it seems to me what's happening now, just like you and I have discussed with Dr. Hugh Len and Ho'oponopono, what if we ended up, and maybe this is forcing our hand, that individually we have to take more and more responsibility for our place in the world, our well-being in the world, and whether we even are concerned about having an impact in the world or not.
0: Well, that's that's kind of what dawns upon me, is that those of us who are aware of the way our own thinking and our own stories and our own beliefs actually reflect upon the world around us, Yeah. to me it seems like it puts us in a position of of having that choice or really needing to take responsibility for what is happening in the world not from the outer perspective but from the inner perspective of what are the stories that we are telling ourselves that's creating the world around us and that's that's a kind of a subtle thing for many people i think and many people may have a really hard time grasping that or accepting that We've talked about this in the past. Yeah. What are your thoughts about that? Well, to finish, because I, I completely agree with you, Antonio, because
1: I think there's some line I have there in the first book. You know, it's so funny when I go back, I'm a little maze a lot of times going, wow, did I write that? Um, <laughs> because it doesn't feel a part of me anymore. But anyhow, the old mystics always thought this, that our, in, our inner reality, our inner landscapes, whatever you want to call it is what determines our outer reality. And unfortunately we live in a world that is so minimized, if not almost banished, that inner reality, You know, our inner lives, all that kind of stuff that we just are so used to the shame and blame thing because it externalizes the whole world. So to finish that Dalai Lama story that I was telling earlier, which is in the curriculum, when the person in the audience had asked him about how come he didn't fight the Chinese, he said, like I mentioned earlier, war is obsolete, you know. And then I think he paused for a moment. And then he said, the mind can rationalize anything. And if I went and fought the Chinese, then my head and my heart would be at war with each other. And he said that would make no sense whatsoever. And I'm paraphrasing here, but that's kind of where we are with the culture that we have gotten so disconnected from our hearts, our emotional bodies, that we can rationalize anything, whether it's pollution, whether it's putting more crazy things up in the atmosphere, whatever, you know, all of this like political polarization. And yet our hearts are never on board with a lot of those rationalizations because we are doing just that, rationalizing. And as the point that I was making in this new book, our culture for the most part lives in its head. And this is where a lot of these paradigms are collapsing because we're not relying, and, and this was something that was so great with your conversation with Ms. Davadas was that she was so wonderful when she would talk about you know, I have to hear this from my heart brain. I have to hear this from my gut, that she was really, they were really combining all three of those intelligences that had the heart and the gut so that it was really a more comprehensive way of looking at the world. But we now, as far as I can tell, and we've we've had this talk, too, and, and Carla, you know, your conversations with Carla, your previous um, co-host, that we have weaned this kind of intelligence out of our educational system. That we don't have people that are being taught critical thinking to say, well, intuitively, how do you feel about this particular whatever is happening in your life? We, at least as far as I can tell, and I do have that quote somewhere in the curriculum from Doris Lessing, when she talks about our educational system, it is a system of indoctrination. And we're indoctrinating people to be wonderful citizens in a capitalist culture. But it doesn't teach anymore this idea of, wait a minute, you know, questioning whatever's coming down the line and seeing if it has value or not within the context of one's life.
0: Yeah. And also recognizing that perhaps one of the best uses of our intellect is to actually use it to question the supremacy of our intellect. Yes. and yes. to recognize its true place in the entire scheme of things.
1: Yes, you're absolutely right, Tonyo, and I think this ties back to what you're just mentioning earlier about your your particular chosen lifestyle there in Vermont. That we have gotten, you know, it's like there's that other bumper sticker. It's like, don't believe everything you think. That we're not even questioning our thoughts. We've gotten so into it. So whenever the next distraction that keeps our mental attention you know, obsessed in some way. We just keep going for the ride rather than that certain point where you say, wait a minute, do I even need to be taking this ride at this point? Maybe I should just be walking out in the woods. Maybe I should just sit down and meditate for a while. Maybe I need to reflect on how much do I love my mother at this moment and what could I do to even further enhance that relationship.
0: And when talking about questioning our own authority, like Byron Katie's thing of who would I be without the stories that I tell myself, Yeah, you know, about myself and about everything around me. And then taking it, extending that out, like what would be my experience of the world without my stories about it?
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, Tony. Yesterday I did a long distance balancing um, between here in New Mexico and someone in California. And. With this person, and you're already familiar with this process of noetic balancing, but their particular story was so fascinating because the way they grew up in their household as a child. I think there was an alcoholic father. There was a lot of tension with a sister, a lot of rivalry. And in other words, it was chaos. And the only way that it could function for this particular person was to get a handle on all of that chaos. And that handle has, of course, carried forward into their life until and it's worked out a fine up until the point that they meet someone who has a similar kind of issue. And then at that point, they're butting heads and it's caused a lot of tension. So it's interesting how those stories. And of course, again, we're never taught this in our culture, which is well. You know, as, as I was explaining to this person at the beginning of the bouncing said, you know, we create all these beliefs at the beginning of the ride, you know, in our childhood. And, and we do those beliefs in order just to survive and find safety and security. But the reality is there is a certain point where we need to update the operating software, because what was functional for me as a 10 year old may not be so functional for me when I was 40.
0: Yeah, I think the updating metaphor is really critically important because everything evolves. Everything's evolving. Yeah. Even the universe itself is evolving. And we're so, I think it's the ego part of us that is obsessed with control and maintaining like a status quo of security and you know, that it can feel safe in the world. And, and so I think we all have human beings just have this instinct to like maintain the home, the hearth, keep things as much the same as possible. And yet at the same time, we're also in this state of continual unfolding and evolving and growing. So there's a kind of an inner push-pull tension dynamic going on all the time, that we have to deal with. I was about to say make sense of, but it's not really about making sense of it, it's about integrating it into the wholeness of our being. Yeah, you, you know, you may remember, there was, I can't remember, it was somewhere
1: in the spirituality section of the curriculum of the soul, where I, I talked about the, uh, the prodigal son story, And, you know, how the prodigal son, he took off and he got involved with basically spending his whole inheritance and ended up as a shepherd and, you know, in in, in complete poverty. And then when he finally returns home and there's going to be the big celebration, the big feast, the elder son who had stayed home is saying, wait a minute. And when I had done my little take on that story, I said, you know, there's that aspect exactly like you were just saying, that aspect of our psyches that wants the maintenance of stability, the safety and security aspect. And then there is that sometimes younger aspect of our psyches that's far more adventurous and says, well, safety and security, big deal. I want to have a good time. I want to go out there and I want to experience this world. How do we keep, like you were saying, integrating or just juggling, you know, sort of like an ongoing improvisation, those aspects of ourselves, so that we don't end up just stuck in one or the other, because particularly like that younger aspect, that's where people can get stuck in addictions, things like that. And then you end up with a, a kind of arrested development that happens for people. And I know plenty of people in my life where that has happened because of addiction. And mostly they become, say, if they made it through the addiction, they're quite functional adults, but their emotional body has been divorced somewhere in their teens or some, wherever it was that the addiction was really taking place because the addiction was really the way to circumvent the full onslaught of what was happening in that emotional body. And there was nobody else around to help them through all of that kind of stuff. So it's so fascinating to see these aspects of ourselves and how is this ongoing juggling taking place in the course of a day to like get us through and you know not only be functional but i think to still have this very interesting experience of being alive which would be you know that luminescence of the ordinary you know it's like i think and i don't know if you felt that was hopeful or not in that particular essay where i talk about that idea of imagining coming back after my death You know, making some deal with the divine and saying, just give me 24 more hours and just to experience, you know, be like you just walking back out in your woods again. And knowing a place that's so familiar and to smell those smells again and to see those colors, to feel the breeze, all those things again, that that's the luminescence of the ordinary that I think a lot of us with all these distractions going on in our life, we can really miss, like you looking out your window right now, miss the simple magic of snow
0: falling. How glorious is that? So what you're saying is sort of similar to, like, let's say somebody... Who's on their deathbed and they know they're about to die and and they're reflecting back on on all the things that they neglected to enjoy in their life. Yes. Yes.
1: Yeah, like isn't I can't remember. There was some it's almost a hallmarky thing, which was somebody that said, you know, if they had a chance to do it all over again, they would definitely have smelled more flowers, you know, that kind of thing. And I think we lose touch with that, unfortunately, that there really is magic in a lot of simplicity. Like, you know, the simplicity of, say, a great soup, you know, something that you have prepared by hand in the kitchen. You know, the simplicity of, oh, who knows, like in Vermont, you know, how their woodworkers, you know, are creating lovely pieces of furniture. And, and just to look at the grain of that wood and and just like wow, this really is astonishing. I think we live in a culture that always wants it to be kind of overwhelming in a certain sense. It has to be over the top. Like when I see, you know, I don't watch television either, Antonio, but, you know, I've seen this in the past, the Super Bowl halftime shows. and, and But whenever I visit my mother, I see this on television as well. It's like, this is so over the top It just feels synthetic, it feels toxic, and it just doesn't feel real in any possible way. And yet, is this what it takes to get people to actually
0: react to things anymore? Well, it's what it takes to get people to do what they want them to do, like to support this insane economy, which is all about endless growth, which relies on endless sales and profit and money making for those people who are at the top of that economic pyramid. And getting back to what you were saying earlier about enjoying the ordinary things in life, I would say it's about enjoying whatever's right here in this present moment. Yes. Did you ever smoke pot when you were young?
1: Actually, it took me until college um, to do it and I never really got very involved, but it was an interesting place of checking different consciousness.
0: Uh, but, but do you remember like maybe one of the very first times that you smoked and you found yourself just getting completely and deeply immersed in something so much so that you sort of snapped out of it like maybe 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes later to realize that everybody had left or the whole scene had changed and that you had been so immersed <laughs> it's something that was so ordinary, and yet it was such a deep, immersive experience that we probably never thought of it as being anything particularly magical or anything. It was just that we were so immersed in it.
1: <laughs> you know, I, my version of that, and it's quite true what you're saying, Tonio, that the first time there was some, some friends when I was, I think, a freshman in college, and they had put on and i may have even described this oh i think i did in um in the essay on a case against the use of recreational marijuana and in that particular setting they really wanted to get me high so the you know we're smoking joint after joint they put on because they knew that i love the music of joni mitchell they put on her music and i already had a very strong connection emotionally to her music and there was a point where the high was kicking in and all of a sudden the song was lasting forever, and it was completely disorienting to me because I already had this very strong emotional connection, and now it was almost like pulling on taffy, and everything was getting stretched out, and I really didn't know quite how to deal with it, to be honest. But it was the experience that you're talking about where all of a sudden I was so immersed in this and going, why is this song lasting so long? And it was a very interesting thing, but I found it disorienting for me. And maybe that's why pot never really took a hold, because there's at least in my case, my most sure moments growing up had to do with my connection to my emotional body through the arts through music, through film, things like that. And when that connection somehow would get altered, it would really sort of like pull the rug out from under me. And so it's always been a very important thing. And it goes back to what you were just talking about before, that idea of how present, and that was what it took me to get through my childhood, to be present with this emotional body and all the things that were having an influence on it. And it's been an invaluable thing even though it happened through the back door of my childhood, because in essence, I was sort of growing up in an emotional desert. There was never any kind of conversation about, you know, how are you feeling or, you know, like never even, you know, conversations of I love you, you know, those sorts of things going on in my particular house growing up. And I don't think it was a particularly unusual household. But of course, we just accepted it as siblings. It's like, oh, this must be normal. So this presence thing goes back to what we were talking about earlier, and I think we discussed this in our last conversation as well, with a world that's so filled with distractions right now, all these collapsings that are taking place. How does one stay present in the midst of this deluge of information, all the insanity that's happening in the world, the collapse of a paradigm? How do we still stay present within this and still be human? How does that
0: work for you? Well, that's, that seems to be our job in this world, you know, to be true to ourselves, to be in alignment with who we truly are. And, and that's really, I think, what the whole purpose of the Zen koan is, is to engage in that kind of paradoxical dynamic and actually deliberately engage in the integration of that into our direct conscious experience. And there's an interesting thing about this quote-unquote direct conscious experience and integration because it also involves working with our unconscious and the kind of dynamic or tension between our conscious and unconscious you know our consciousness and and the things that we're unconscious of the things that we don't know and how we work with that and that relates to the great inner work that that we have to do, or that we are called to do, or that I think is our true responsibility in our lives in this world.
1: Oh, I, I completely agree. You know, I did a show last week, Tonya, in which the theme was, well, there's a poem called "Love After Love" by Derek Walcott, which is quite lovely, but in essence, the show is about self-love. And this very area that you're talking about right now fits, Quite beautifully within that umbrella. That and I was mentioning during that particular radio show because I don't speak very much. It's really just poetry and the music that I play. But I was saying, you know, we're never taught this. At least not in my particular experience. I'm not aware of it very often. As far as it certainly isn't in our schools. It certainly isn't in church. You know, our religions. Uh, you know, you're very lucky if you can get anything like that at home. And it's this very process that you just mentioned this process of discovery as we are getting older, how do we learn to take care of ourselves? How do we learn to love what we do and even you know, acknowledge what we don't have, all these kinds of things, so that we can get to a place where that sense of personal safety and security is really rooted very deeply inside, that in other words, don't have to completely depend on something external, in order to be happy. I mean, that was what was so interesting and what is still a little bit interesting in terms of this pandemic time. How many people have been so focused on what I guess was people, you know, will call, you know, getting things back to normal, that once the external reality shifted, that so many people were really caught completely off guard in terms of they had no inner resources whatsoever in terms of how to deal with the world. It was so fascinating to me, and yet it wasn't surprising. Did you have that same
0: experience? You mean observing people around me or the culture around me? Yes. Not nearly as much as probably most people, just because I'm pretty isolated and insulated up here in, in the woods here in Vermont. And many of the people I know were also really enjoying the sort of beneficial side effects of the pandemic <laughs> yeah the quiet the quiet of the traffic on the streets <laughs> yeah that and yeah and and all the other good feeling benefits you know thinking about commerce being shut down and and not going to work and things like that yeah it's it's an interesting interesting dynamic and I was thinking about your childhood your upbringing, and how it seems that we kind of have two ways of learning. We can either learn by having things modeled for us, if we're lucky enough to have. Well, we do learn things, even, you know, we learn things from positive modeling. And of course, and and we learn from negative modeling. But we can also learn by realizing the effects of what we didn't get and thereby we can learn how to nourish ourselves by giving ourselves what we didn't get when we realize what we need in relation to what we didn't get or didn't learn from our parents or the culture around us. And that's, that's actually a lot harder because then you're sort of out on your own in a way and you have to kind of fend for yourself and you have to make mistakes and you have to, you know, use trial and error because there aren't a lot of, landmarks and signposts and models for the kind of nourishment that we most deeply want and need. And yet, I think it's our soul's nature to find a way to guide us along that path one way or
1: another. And this is such an interesting place. And I think you were touching on this when you were talking to them, May to T- Tava- Yeah, you can just
0: call them Maya. Okay, Maya.
1: That she had this great or they had this great thing. That, Isn't it um, hard?
0: Isn't it hard yeah. dealing with that?
1: Yeah, it, it's it's I'm just not used to it. And so yep. that's why I keep correcting myself and I apologize for that, but I'm I'm trying to get myself retrained here as I'm speaking with you. Anyhow, they <laughs> had this great acronym using the word God. And the way that they described it was gift of desperation. And it's a conversation I was having recently with my partner and talking about this idea. Why is it like what are the circumstances that get certain people that get on this very boat you were just talking about? This idea of transformation in the course of our lives, growing into, like the, the title of that first essay in the new book, growing into our loving, that kind of thing. And yet other people. Nothing happens at all. I have two male siblings. You know, I also have a sister as well. And they, for whatever reason, they're fairly conservative. And I don't think anything's really been challenged or changed since their childhoods in terms of how they are as human beings. And there's nothing right or wrong about it. But for them, and, and they both have had what I would consider, you know, great traumas have, you know, taking place in their lives, an amputation with my older brother, my younger brother has been through three major depressions plus a heart event, you know, that almost took out his life. And yet change was never gonna be part of their menu at all. And yet with another person, it could be something as, you know, who knows, you like in your twenties, the end of a relationship and saying, oh gosh, I have to change my life. This isn't working out and really doing whatever work to get to a new place. It's such a fascinating area for me because I don't know what it is that creates the impetus for one person and yet for the other person it might have phenomenal circumstances. It's sort of like looking at our culture. Here's this amazing pandemic, gives us this great pause, and yet there is this anxiety about how quickly can we get back to normal when in reality, normal has really brought us almost to the brink of extinction to begin with and we want to go back to that normal. There's something that gets confused for me in there as far as what kind of thinking is going on here?
0: Well, I think everybody has, you know, their evolution occurs at their own pace in their own way. And everybody goes through the different lessons that they have to learn in their own order. And maybe maybe it doesn't happen in this lifetime or maybe the lessons they need to learn in this life are different than the ones that we need to learn if you you know if you want to look at the evolution of the soul in terms of existing beyond just a single physical lifetime in this world
1: yeah and i think that the soul is quite impartial about this very area you're talking about tonio that really doesn't make a whole lot of difference because it just figures, well, if not this time, I'll just do it the next time. But it's and also.
0: And also as, as we've talked about and, and you've talked about, the soul loves the ride, whatever it happens to be.
1: Yeah. Although I, I do think there, there may be preferences that I know my soul in particular, that pushing say the limits physically, you know, or, you know, and it could be dancing, it could be skiing, it could be snowshoeing, whatever, but pushing. But let
0: me ask you a, a question. Sure. Do you think that our soul judges us if we don't do any of those things? No, I don't think it does that at all,
1: that that's not, it doesn't have that, it, that's, it's not wired into it that way, because I really do see the soul is really kind of the intermediary between us and the divine, and there is no judgment involved, when you're getting in on that particular level. But I do notice that how happy my soul is, for instance, like today, I did another two hours worth of swimming. And actually, for whatever reason, I was slowing things down even more, (laughs) as if I wasn't going slow enough. I was slowing them down even more and getting lost in the time of it. And at the end of the two hours, I was like, God, that just felt so great. And there are those moments because, you know, there are other times I can go and swimming and and well, that it was still a nice workout, but it didn't necessarily get me to a whole different place. And, you know, it could have been exactly the same pace I was doing today. I have no idea. But for some reason, I really got to this lovely spot today. And my soul is like, wow, I really feel nourished. You know, it's like like if there's a certain who knows for me, it happens in the in the arts. If there's a great poem that comes along and I'll just be like, wow, thank you so much for that. And then there'll be another one. And for whatever reason, it doesn't resonate for me, but it could totally resonate for the person next to me.
0: But I don't think that's the soul enjoying it. It's us enjoying being in greater alignment with the soul. That the soul, I don't think the soul has any less enjoyment because the soul is totally immersed in the direct experience of that. And it doesn't have all the crazy obstacles and stories that we have. To get in its way, so I don't think it's it's well. Let me ask you, what do you, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I, I guess you know, and and I I hear what you're
1: saying, and that's interesting for me to hear that uh, that the soul is really you know pretty neutral about it all. But I know there's what I feel, and maybe I'm just not articulating this very well, Tonio. Is there's it's almost like a certain nurturing. I can feel is taking place within, and whether that has to do with my soul or some aspect of my psyche, it would be hard for me to tell exactly, but I can feel, you know, there's this thing of like, wow, something happened here, whatever it was. And it didn't, doesn't have to be only physically, it could be listening to a great piece of music, it could be connecting in a conversation, it could be any of these things.
0: But isn't uh, that our experience in relation to our soul? Because, yeah. I mean, yeah. we, have to, we have to acknowledge that, There's no separation between us and our soul, but I think it's our individual perspective of our experience where we we, uh, have that kind of qualified experience of whether we're enjoying something or not enjoying something. And I
1: think you're right. I think you're articulating this much better than I. And I guess the only thing I would add to it is that, you know, there's that idea that, at least when I'm having that kind of experience and you know, and I'm noticing these things, whatever's going on in my body, it's when I'm feeling a certain integration of the physical, emotional, the psychological, and even the spiritual, you know, in whatever varying degrees all of those are participating, there's kind of a weaving of a fabric that takes place. And that's when I can feel the certain thing of like, God, that just felt so satisfying, whatever it might be. And whether that's nurturing the soul there's no way for me to refer you know have a reference point for that to like is this true is this not true um all i know is it feels good
0: yeah and we all like to feel good we we all would much prefer to feel good than to feel bad and that kind of sets the stage for what could end up being a kind of addiction or or maybe an attachment to feeling good and an aversion to feeling bad. And isn't that a really important soul level lesson? Oh,
1: absolutely. Me? Cause there is a discernment in here and, and this is where I need to explain a little bit further. For me, feeling good would include feeling the full on depth of grief, for instance, which most of our culture doesn't want to do, or the full on feeling of the blues That even what our mainstream culture would consider those, you know, sort of negative emotions, to me, they're all fabulous because, you know, I'm feeling something. But the difference is if we're resisting those
0: experiences or not, right?
1: Yes. Yes. You know, in judging them rather than I think from the soul point of view, there is no distinction between, you know, as Robert Waterman would say, the good, the bad or the ugly. It makes no distinction whatsoever between all of that. And right. I'm just happy to be feeling it all because I think it's just I've just accepted this as part of the, the package. And so, for instance, if, you know, whatever event takes place in my life and I start feeling the blues about that event, I'm like, well, but this is exactly what it's like being alive. And why resist it? Why judge it? Why anything? It's like, wow, I get to even feel this you know, the idea that all has to be up, it all has to be happy. That's just an illusion. You might as well be on drugs at that point. And I'm far more interested in the full spectrum. You know, it's like how I opened up the introduction in the new book, which was we're filled and surrounded with infinite possibilities. And that's where it gets interesting for me not to get so exclusive in terms of how we're going to feel or you know like all i want to do is just be happy it's like well happy's okay um i i know how that feels i think calm also feels good i also think exuberant feels good i also think that me crying you know was not long ago my partner and i watched the film coda which i had been reading about and i finally got to see it and it was shot in gloucester mass and it's about you know the coda is a acronym for children of deaf adults and there are some heart-wrenching moments, and I can still feel it now. And it's just like, oh God, this feels so great to to like to feel this depth of experience. It's just fabulous.
0: Yes, that is a deeper and greater kind of a sense of joy and good feeling. But what about when we have, emotional triggers or, or traumas that are stored in our body or stories that are still unseen and unrecognized that create fear of certain kinds of experiences that that make us instinctively or or in a knee-jerk way push against certain feelings like quote-unquote difficult feelings, feelings like shame and guilt and remorse that we don't know how to get around those sticky trauma like or or in, right those sticky embodied traumas that still manifest as felt obstacles to our ability to integrate grief or pain in a way that feels enriching and nourishing like when when um those kind of experiences can be transmuted into wisdom as opposed to the original experience as pain or suffering. Yeah, yeah. What would you say about that dynamic? Because again, it's really easy to get caught up in just thinking about the good feeling side of being successful, quote unquote, successful in integrating our traumas and our our grief and and other difficult emotions in a way that now feels so delicious because it's now nourishing us in in a greater more multi-dimensional way but to get there we still have to i don't know walk through the briar patch and and get (laughs) get shredded a bit or you know (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah, And, just, and you know, yeah. the, the vicissitudes of life, you know, the slings and arrows. Yeah. So I had a situation
1: just like this yesterday. And thank heavens I've over maybe just the last 10 or 15 years or so have learned a few tools, including Ho'oponopono that we mentioned earlier, that there's this interesting challenge because I watch myself get triggered. And I had a situation yesterday, and it had to do with my spiritual group. And there's one guy who is just—he's just a pain. And and I think—and the reality is, you know, he's a person who smoked marijuana daily, from according to his own record, daily from age 11 to 21, 10 years straight, daily, and. There's no question in my mind, I don't know if it's true. I'm not a clinical psychologist or anything, but there's no question in my mind there's been arrested development and a complete distancing from his own emotional body because that just got shattered for whatever reason. So these little things will come up. And this guy's always needling me about something. You know his latest thing was, well, how do you verify? you know, the people that you put up on the website. And I made it very clear. I said, it's really not complicated. There are two sources where income is found. It's either through, you know, Robert Waterman's partner, Carrie, or the treasurer of the association. The PayPal stuff goes through Carrie. The checks go to this, the treasurer of the association. They tell me who's paid. And then I just update the page accordingly on the website. That's it. Nothing more complicated than that. And he wanted to turn it into a thing. And I was realizing as I'm going through this, because I'm watching myself get triggered with this whole thing, because one thing that I know that I can do, and there are many, many things I know I can't do. One thing I know I can do is when it comes to the functional, because I was a property manager for so long, but also as a story of my childhood, when it comes to the functional, I am very efficient as far as just getting it done and and usually trying to do it competently. And I've been doing this now for, you know, over 60 years of my life. So I've gotten to be pretty good at it. Anyhow, there's a part of me that gets triggered when people are questioning my competence when it comes to these functional things. And, you know, it's like, well, if you don't trust me, then then don't give me the job. And this person, it doesn't matter how I explain it. It's just always a problem. And I I was just like, are we really spending time on this? So I had to dig in, Tonio. Here was the 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 crux of this because it was keeping me from really getting a good night's sleep. And I had to dig in and said, so what is the belief in here? And I realized it had to go back to some extent with my relationship with my father because there were aspects of his fathering that he was a great provider. He, you know, we we were always clothed and fed, and he was steady and he was faithful and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to actual nurturing, and you know any kind of love in our household, it was pretty non-existent. And I think there was some part of me as a child that judged him as fairly incompetent as a father because he really didn't seem to have any interest in terms of like, well, he wanted to have the kids, but he didn't really want to interact with them in any fashion. So I had to dig in there and start looking at my judgments. And I had to start looking at my beliefs that I had created around that. And when I started creating certain forgiveness statements, and this was just last night, Boom, I was right back asleep. And I could see it was this old stuff that was still coming forward. And now because I have these tools and I have some kind of, I guess, ability to recognize when it happens. It's like, so, Rick, what are you going to do? Are you just going to sit in this kind of vortex of mud or are you going to climb out so you can still get a good night's sleep and still be a functional human being out here in the world? So that's my process. And there's a part of me that. I wouldn't say exactly enjoys, but it's sort of like in a balancing, and and you know what that experience is like, that there's this exploration of like, you know, I have no idea where I'm going, what do I need to do to try and get this thing cleared up? How do I break the block in the energy is what is really happening.
0: And one of the things that I love about your noetic balancing practice is that process and formula of forgiving oneself for whatever mess or stasis or stuckness one might find oneself in or or anything that that is not feeling right yeah because it's it's like like i was discovering it
1: yet again last night there were these certain beliefs that i was creating as a kid certain judgments i was creating as my little who knows eight-year-old self whatever that I needed to forgive and I needed to get after. And this is the whole, and if one wants to take on this kind of cosmology in terms of the soul, how do we keep things, you know, kind of that we're, we're, it's not like we're here to fix ourselves. You know, that's kind of the ego-centered way of wanting to deal with the world. It's more the soul-centered thing of, how do I keep movement happening so I don't get stuck in any particular place? you know, my my partner's really quite wonderful, that she is very much connected to the idea of touch, of being very verbal in our loving towards each other, things that are totally unfamiliar to me, based on my childhood. So she's become this lovely teacher, as far as getting me to grow into this aspect of myself that never had a chance to evolve as a kid. And there's a part of it, that's a struggle, because it's just so unfamiliar that it's like, you mean i really have to be this vulnerable and on another part of me that's like this is so great it's everything that i never got to do as a kid
0: Mm -hmm. and how do i get bigger in relation to all the challenges that i encounter
1: yeah so if we you know it's like that
0: idea the the title of that
1: first essay in the new book growing into our loving it's sort of like growing into our souls it's
0: it's really the same thing growing into alignment with
1: yeah you know, and I love that idea. I think I have that curriculum. I can't remember what writer who who had said this, but it's like, we don't have bodies, we have souls. And that the soul is what is totally encompassing the body. And we get so hung up on this idea of bodies, and maybe there might be a soul inside. No, it's exactly the opposite. We have these huge souls How can I get the experience within the context of this body to grow into the enormity of this gift of the soul that I've been given?
0: Yes, and our journey in relation to our soul, I think, is that we are kind of gravitationally always being drawn into expansion, expanding our perspective to include everything and not reject anything not yeah. judge anything like like I could imagine going back to your thing about this guy who smoked pot for 10 years straight. I could imagine and and you're thinking that it caused arrested development in him and I could imagine Byron Katie saying. Is that really true? Do you know absolutely if that story is true or or implying that that's a story you're telling yourself? Yeah, yeah. About that And we do that all the time. And many of those stories that we tell ourselves slip through unquestioned. Yes. And they always end up coming back to bite us in the ass at some point.
1: (laughs) Well, and that's where I had to get to that place. And I don't know what time it was last night. Who knows? Midnight or something like that. Where I had to shift the perspective enough that rather than getting you know, all the little nitpicky stuff, you know, like I've been a member of this association for like 15 years. This guy can't even spell my name. And anyhow, I was like, well, what if I take more of this other perspective of, so he's somehow karmically being my teacher in the moment, And what is it that I need to clean up so he doesn't have to be my teacher anymore?
0: (laughs) Or a different approach is, (laughs) he's my teacher. Yay, (laughs) bring (laughs) on more, bring on more.
1: (laughs) Well, and that is, that was kind of implied in there in the sense of like, oh, wow, I get to do the work. I get to go back inside and do the work here and find out. So what is this little thing in here that still wants to get cleaned up? Because I, you know, I like that idea that the souls that all of us, you know, whatever we're endowed with when we come in, That there's these little pieces of imperfection that karmically, for whatever reason, is attached to our souls. And it's what we're here to kind of clean up in the course of this lifetime so that our souls get to evolve. And who knows? You know, I'm not I'm not interested in the idea that if I evolve my soul, I'm going to make this a better planet. You know, that gets back into that fix it kind of mentality, which I'm not really a big fan of. It's really more like, well, it just makes for a larger experience of being alive.
0: Yeah. And uh, being able to think of this person going, oh, I can't stand this person, but whoopee, <laughs> I'm going to get to see him again tomorrow. <laughs> well, there's all this juice. And, you know, it's also good, Tony. I don't know. Um,
1: and, I, and, you know, I'm curious in your own particular journey that. I've noticed in the course of my life, particularly in the last 20 years, there were certain people that I really was highly enamored of. Um, and I'll use examples. So, you know, I'll be forthright. For instance, there was a the work of Michael Mead with Robert Bly and James Hillman. And I was still subscribing to Michael Mead's podcast. And then I realized about four or five years ago, as much as I love his work with mythology and, and all the things that he brings forth, there was a hole in the middle of it for me. And the hole was that there is never a mention of the concept of love in all of these mythologies, all these things he's talking about in our own personal journeys, in our lives, all the things taking place. It's like, but where is love? And there is a point where I was like, you know, I'm not sure I'm learning anything more from this context. And as I keep going on whatever this crazy ride is being alive, I find that there are certain people like Joseph Campbell I still stay with, for instance, There are certain musicians and music I still stay with, and other people that are like, well, they were great for that part of the ride. Now, not so much. And this was part of this thing I was going through last night. It's like, do I really need to even be part of a spiritual community that really doesn't feed me in any way? Because the main thing is I love Robert Waterman and Carrie Thorne's work, and I particularly love this modality of noetic balancing, which I think is absolutely astounding i wish it could be out there and this is my hope part here's my ego part that's like i wish it could be helping more people out there on the planet but for whatever reason it's not doing that at the particular moment but i'm never going to let go of that because every time i do a balancing i'm like this is the most amazing journey of discovery because it isn't whatever i'm discovering with a client i know it has something to do with me too And that's why it's showing up between me and the client. That's that kind of quantum interface that's taking place. So it's so fascinating to see all this stuff taking place and, you know, going like there was like, I forgive myself for believing that I have to have a spiritual community in order to be a part of my identity. Did you ever go through anything like that?
0: Oh, yeah, of course. I've been through all kinds of things like that throughout my life.
1: Yeah. And so are there people you still hang with in terms of what they're teaching and other people that have kind of gone to the wayside in the process?
0: Oh, yeah. Lots of them. Yeah. <laughs> Not always because there was necessarily anything lacking in an overt sort of way. It was probably just that I outgrew them or or my path took me in a different direction. And yeah, I tend to trust my my overall guidance, and this comes, you know, the hard way from having spent many, 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 many years sitting in limbo, feeling like I had no guidance guiding me, and that I was like, "Come on already! Where, where the f am I going? Or what's?"
1: Going <laughs> <up?"> <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's interesting with you, Tonio, is that now with this great radio show that you have, that there's this lovely kind of picking and choosing. Of course, you get to decide who your guests are, but there are certain, and I can tell that particularly for you, the conversations, and these are really where they get quite lit up on your show, the conversations that have to do with trauma and healing are really quite fascinating. And I know that it's an area that, and it also is very resonant for me as well, and those guests that you're continually learning or resonating is like in Patricia Musham's book, resonating with her whole approach towards how do we deal with the body, the parasympathetic nervous system? How do we deal with healing and not necessarily give ourselves over to the Western method that is really more an a fix it thing rather than a well-being kind of thing?
0: Yeah, well, I think that's perhaps one of the most relevant issues to keep bringing up and to keep reflecting upon and learning from.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I quite agree with you, although, you know, like as I mentioned, I have family members, you know, my mother's never gone to this place, I have two of my three siblings that have never gone to this place, and are quite disinterested, actually. And this kind of goes back to what Maya had of God, you know, gift of of desperation that it seems to me that for this very work that you and I are talking about, which obviously are in both of my books, uh, you know, to some extent, there has to be a certain kind of humility and vulnerability in order to really, you know, like in that that place of desperation to say, You know, I have to figure out something different because the way I've been doing it, I certainly this is what I had to confront in terms of all my old codependent relationships in which I was very much a part. I had to finally, when I kept hitting the same wall saying, well, Rick, maybe you have to do something inside to change this dynamic so that there's going to be something that will be enduring, lasting and really based on loving, caring rather than the whole fear based thing of, like, codependence of, because, you know, here I am with my old abandonment wounds, and codependence was, like, the perfect thing to try and banish those wounds, but it wasn't dealing, in fact, with the abandonment thing. The abandonment thing really had to do to the extent I was willing to abandon myself.
0: Yeah, and whenever we abandon anybody else, it's just, in the most real terms, an abandoning of some part of ourself. Yeah. And that, and that of course, as you well know, is just the work that we have to do or that that's the work that we're called to doing. And that's why those kind of situations arise to give us that opportunity.
1: Yeah. And this goes back to the new book, too, you know, that we live in a fear-based world. And what if we shifted? And this is more that Dr. Hugh Len, the Pono guy, is talking about the, the personal responsibility piece what if it was more of a love based and that's you know that's the luminescence of the ordinary what if we approach this from a love base that and again that self-care the self-love piece of well this is the work and you know and it's not a narcissistic love there's nothing romantic or anything like that it's actually quite pragmatic from my perspective of well this is the work of keeping the love going and if i do that work inside then I can just start paying attention and and seeing like, so how how is my life working out now? You know, that kind of thing. Because in in the past, it was so easy from a fear-based point of view, I could just keep shaming and blaming forever. And that self-justification literally can go on forever. From this other perspective of self-responsibility, i.e. the love-based perspective, it's like, well, shame and blame's off the table, And since I can't really do that, there's only one place I got to work with, and that's inside myself. And it also means that, okay, like, for instance, I have this this compulsion that on the road that comes out to my house. It's about uh, maybe a mile and a quarter to get out to the highway that for the last 20 years, I've been picking up the trash alongside there. Not because I think I'm some great altruistic person or anything is because I really don't want to look at it. And I think the landscape's so beautiful, it really, you know, diminishes my experience of the landscape. So I just take it upon myself to clean up the trash. I used to do it every week after the radio show. Now it's become actually since the pandemic, less and less and less. And it's so interesting because this unconscious thing has happened where less and less and less and less, and less trash keeps showing up. And it's almost like I can drive. I can go sometimes for a week or so and never see anything on the side of the road and go, "Wow, this is really working. This is so fascinating, And I can just continue on with my day.
0: The joy of self-responsibility.
1: yeah. And you know it's 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 just so interesting because I do think that people, there's an unconscious thing that we don't pay quite a bit of attention to in our planet. It's like Marshall Rosenberg, who you're very familiar with that he talks about it's either 90 or 95% if communication is nonverbal. To what extent, it's like what we were talking about in our last conversation, can I keep refining my presence so that things can just flow in whatever way they're going to flow in my life rather than always waking up and finding resistance in places? There's something about it, including the flowing of having these crazy teachers show up in my life and it's like, oh crap, I got some more work to do that that's part of the flow, too.
0: Are you suggesting that we we need to have an alignment between all the different aspects of our being so that what we're actually communicating out to the world beyond just our words is in alignment? No, it's not so much alignment. Of course, I think that's part of it
1: you know, that we want to be true to however we're verbalizing our experience, but it's really,
0: it's like refining our presence. That's what I mean, that we may have an outer message that we're trying to communicate, but if the rest of us is actually living in contradiction to it, or what you were just alluding to, if the rest of us is being in contradiction to it, then we're actually sending out a mixed message at best.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. So there, I still consider it that, and this is more of a soul center point of view, whatever stuff is showing up in my life, it's showing up there for a reason. Um, And a lot of times, you know, the mystery is too big for me. You know, I just have a human sized brain with human sized abilities. Um, And some things I just don't know. You know, I don't know why certain friends committed suicide or died in car wrecks or cancer, things like that. I don't understand so many things. But with the things that do show up, and that includes maybe the death of someone, it's like, oh, I guess it's time for me to hop in on on the grief train and see how that ride is going, you know, that kind of thing. Because I can't explain, you know, I'm not a big fan of meaning per se, unless you're talking about definitions of words or things like that. But, you know, so what was the meaning of, you know, this friend dying? It's like, I really don't know, and I'm not sure that's really the point. I think more, you know it's like people getting lost in the despair when to me underneath the despair of what's happening now is there's a real layer of grief and a real grieving for these things that are getting lost and that feeling that is probably a healthier way to go than just getting lost in the despair
0: and that happens when we open ourselves and expand ourselves to the point where experience of despair becomes integrated along with everything else yes it's no longer something that's like a thorn that we get that we suffer from that we experience pain from it becomes something that we acknowledge fully acknowledge as an integral part of ourselves and our experience just part of the menu that's all and once we pull the the wholeness of our experience not even our identity or who we are. Yeah. Unless you're thinking in the ultimate terms of who we are. (laughs) But
1: yes, absolutely. It's just all part of the experience. And so rather than judging it or getting attached to it, it's to me way more interesting to sort of be with it. You know, it's like in your conversation with Dr. Musham, she would talk about like walk into those places. Don't put them at arm's distance, don't like, oh, you know, I'm just in despair and identify with them, whatever. Actually walk into them and see what they might be having to tell you um, or just feeling the feelings that are related to it and then see what happens. It may stay with you. It may dissipate. Who knows? I know that once I face my fears, like looking at my own self-abandonment, for instance, now I may be too hyper-vigilant in terms of not wanting too much codependence or, you know, to what extent I can, like, I'd rather be in a relationship, which I think I am now, which is a healthy dependence on each other. And that's quite lovely. So that I found a way to really walk through the fear rather than make the fear control what was happening to me in my life.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, another way of approaching that could be like, what's getting in the way of your loving, to use the the language that you use? Yes. What's, What's getting in the way of my loving or my loving in relation to this particular thing that I'm experiencing or this particular thing that's occurring in my life? Yes,
1: yes. You know, that loving thing, and I realize this is the language of Robert Waterman and Carrie Thorne, but there's something I like about it, And to what extent can I have a certain amount of integrity? You know, it's like with this new book, you know, that image on the cover of those aspen leaves that was taken last fall up in Colorado. And I hired a graphic designer who I hadn't worked before. But I think she did this beautiful, lovingly, you know, design of this cover. And I'm so happy because when I look at normal book covers, they never really grab me because they just seem so formulaic. And I really wanted to have something that was going to be representative of, you know, like, so what would if there was a visual representation of the luminescence of the ordinary, what would that look like? And I thought this, you know, these lit up gold aspen leaves on a completely black background Mm is like, well, but isn't that what we're hoping for in the moment to moment events of our lives to get lit up? And it doesn't matter. Like I said, it doesn't have to be happiness. It doesn't have to be the blues. It can be any one of these experiences. But, you know, it's like the end of that Jack Gilbert's poem where he talks about to feel it that much. Because in that poem, he was talking about the loss of his lover, and I think the death of his lover. And he says to go back to that grief, to feel that much alive. And I think that's the idea is like how to what extent do we really want to feel alive to what extent do we want to be distracted? You know, that's why there's an essay in there says where do you want to put your attention? Do you want to put your attention on being distracted and that's obviously what's going to happen? Do you want to put your attention on loving but the thing is and this is the interesting part about loving I've seen like my own spiritual community There can be all this talk, but I see very little walk and the thing about these, you know kind of spiritual ideas Unless they're somehow translated into whether it's some version of art or some version of action, it's just talk to me. And that's where I get a little frustrated with certain spiritual communities because they end up with certain lingos and almost can become cult-like. But I want to know, you know, it's like here we have some people in Taos that And I don't think they think of themselves as spiritual, but they use a church and it's called the share table and they feed people. They collect food from around the community and they give they hand out food and they're helping people on a regular basis. And it was a previous minister that started all this. And that to me is walking the walk. You know, how can we serve others with whatever gifts that we may be endowed with? And I think that that's you, too, Tonio, that you're taking your gift of connection, conversation, also curiosity into these conversations and bringing them out to the world so that people might get a little different perspective on whatever is happening in them or in the world or whatever. And we don't get to hear very much as like overwhelmed as we are with the podcasts available on the planet
0: right now. So I have a question about something that you write about in your new book. It's about imagination and empathy in love and connection mm-hmm. and like comparing imagination from the ego versus embodied imagination. Mm, yeah, yeah. although I make a point, I think the world of
1: imagination, particularly with the the decrease in art programs, which is only just one doorway, But I think imagination has, for the most part, been squashed in our education system. It seems to me that's one of the very things that should be encouraged. So, for instance, to use imagination in a very pragmatic way, and I don't know how it is for other people, but so I'm in this committed relationship with this lovely person. And it's hard for me to imagine, for instance, getting involved like having an affair or something, because it would only take half of a second, less than that, to know how painful that would be to be on the receiving end of that kind of news to discover something like that. And it's always amazing to me to see the lack of imagination happening out in the world today. You know, it's like the driver who cuts off another driver and, you know, could be causing a real accident. I mean, yesterday I'm driving home. And I'm turning into my road and you know, there's like over a hundred houses that this road accesses. So this is like a pretty major thing, it's a county road. And blocking the road completely is a semi. And there are plenty of places along the highway where one could pull over. This guy's blocking our road because he liked the fact that the road was plowed out and there was some local person that wanted to get his wood delivery right there, blocking the road. And I looked at this and I said, that's fascinating. Because obviously for both the semi driver and the wood person, nobody else existed at that particular point in time. And I was driving the old Rover so I could drive around them on this whole muddy area that is not part of the road and still make it home, you know, without having to be inconvenienced. But I thought, this is just so interesting. Who would have ever imagined that it would be okay to block a public road if there was an emergency there? All hell would have broken loose. Because the semi was like parked and unloading lumber, and this was going to take probably half hour, forty five minutes. And I see more and more of this going on. That people, it's like, oh, whoa, you mean there's actually a repercussion for my actions? It's almost as if I see on the planet, and particularly in America, there's this overwhelming kind of adolescent narcissism that has become pervasive. And you know, I kind of mentioned like that essay about you know males without initiation. There is this kind of like well i can do whatever i want and not have to pay any price at all and yet we're finding legally didn't work out so well for the murderers of Ahmad arbery or you know all the officers involved with george floyd's death you know things like that it's like well actually people will get held account but there is this kind of thing like well how much can i get away with and i see this lack of imagination but i also just think of like why is it that people feel like the context of their lives the boundaries of their lives are really based on whatever the culture has to provide rather than what their imaginations might come up with.
0: Well, that's why I asked in relation to imagination coming from the ego's perspective versus a more embodied relational imagination, because this is all about imagination in relation to empathy and how it takes imagination to imagine oneself in somebody else's shoes and that's that's embodying something larger than ourselves rather than an imagination that's just purely from the ego's separate perspective where what it's imagining is is probably just based on you know what's in it for me
1: yes and and i agree with you because there's that essay in the in the new book also which was Written for the restorative justice program up in Colorado, and it was doing exactly this very thing you just talked about, where I was writing to prison inmates, and I don't have any experience doing that, but I was, you know, pointing out there's no real gauge for redemption, and that that ultimately, I said, here's the one thing you'll never see on breaking news or in taught in schools or anything: we're all looking for redemption, and part of that process of redemption, particularly for someone who has committed a crime, is like so. Can you even imagine, for instance, if the person who you had, you know, perpetuated this crime against, that if this was your brother or your sister, can you imagine being in their shoes and how it would have felt that this action took place, you know, in the course of your life? that's the beginning of the redemptive process and then then of course there's a men's work and all that kind of stuff it was an interesting essay for me because I really had to feel into that whole new area that you're just mentioning which is like so what is it and I guess this is I don't know it's like wasn't there some self-help book years ago which was like everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten you know like putting things away treating other people kindly all that kind of stuff I always think of how I go out in the world from kind of that context. And it's not like I'm trying to be careful or anything. I'm just thinking like, well, kindness just seems like it's a resonance for me in terms of how to be in the world. You Like when I go swimming, I always clean up the pool area. And nobody at the facility that works there does it, nobody else who swims does it. And again, it's only because I would like to see the thing and now it's become kind of a thing. And it's all, you know, people actually are starting to help a little more in doing that. And it's really quite lovely because it's like, well, it just, again, like picking up that trash, it's like, well, you know, this is just my little compulsion and I'm happy to spend the time. And it feels like more comfortable for me to swim in that sort of atmosphere rather than, say, like a bunch of stuff floating around in the pool and I'm having to swim into it and all that sort of stuff.
0: Well, Marsha Rosenberg talked about that in that it was really important that people do things for what he called the right reason, not because society dictates that they're supposed to do that or that anybody in particular dictates that they're supposed to do it that way. Because when people do something out of a sense of obligation, that just engenders resentment. And that actually generates a negative effect and evolving and growing negative effect that is counter to what we're trying to achieve. So he talks a lot about how it's so important to not try to get people to do what you think they should do for the wrong reason, but to find a way to invite them to do things in a way that's meaningful for them. And when I use the term meaningful, I'm talking about an integrated understanding, an embodied sense of understanding about something, not an intellectual understanding, so that when somebody embodies that experience of empathy, they have a connection with the other or with others in relation to what's happening. Whereas if it's purely intellectual, it's just a conceptual thing that that exists in an abstract way that has no embodied connection, and there's no love in there. Yeah, to get back to that language. So for Marshall Rosenberg, it's all about having one being motivated to do the quote unquote right thing because It actually feels right in their own body, in their own being, as opposed to like in parental relationships with children or with boss and employee relationships where you're supposed to do that or you have to do it this way. And the other person is, you know, when they get the opportunity, just give them the uh, middle finger. Yeah, yeah, yeah after doing what was asked of them. And that's the kind of world we live in right now. It's yeah. disembodied, it's disconnected. There is no embodied sense of empathy. And so the imagination is not being used in an empathic and connected way. It's only used in that what's in it for me way, or how am I getting screwed? You know, It's a zero sum kind of intellectual accounting of our relationship with the world which is not much of a relationship is it
1: <laughs> well i agree with you tony in the sense that we're really after connection and that fear-based world which i think is underneath again what you were just talking about if you look closely at this fear-based way of looking at the world it literally precludes connection and particularly when I think of all the things that the fear-based world has created, whether it's misogyny or racism or war or you know our whole adversarial relationship with nature, it just isn't working out. And how are we gonna get back to be reconnected with this world and ourselves and with the people around us? And this is not to say that I have a particular outcome because basically underneath it all, I think that maybe in a hundred years, our species, along with many, many others, will probably not be on the planet the way things are heading right now. But if we're here at the moment, you know, for this particular moment, what are we going to be doing to make this the best ride possible? There's a
0: wonderful line in the book where you say, friends and lovers come and go, but the love created never dies.
1: Yeah. And isn't
0: that, Kind of a law of physics.
1: Yeah, with energy. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And the thing is, you you know, for instance, I'm not in touch with my ex-wife, you know, on any regular basis at all. At this point in my life, it's been, I don't know, what, you know, 25, 30 years since the end of that particular marriage. I can still remember, you know, certain affections and certain connections that we had. And that was sort of like what we were talking about earlier, as far as like outgrowing certain teachers that, you know, obviously it wasn't meant for she and I to do the long haul together for whatever reason. And it's easy for me to go back now and look at where I participated in the dance where I can take responsibility and actually get some wisdom out of all that thing. And I think that's very much a part of this very loving that you're talking about. The loving doesn't really ever die because if you wanna get into the whole bitterness thing, now we're stuck in identity, the fear-based world, all that ego stuff. It's like, well, but I don't think that that ultimately is very useful. I think it's far more useful. If I'm not gonna get any wisdom out of something, then I'm probably destined to repeat that thing again until I finally learn something.
0: Yeah, that makes me think of a wonderful song by Bruce Coburn titled You Get Bigger As You Go.
1: Yes. Yeah. I like Bruce Coburn. I think he's he's the real deal. He's great. So uh, when you look back on your relationships, you know, and I realized that, you know, we've all had, you know, those difficult traumatic endings and all that. How do you look at them now?
0: Well. For me definitely not only does the love created never die but in a in a way it gets cleaner it gets purer because all of the negative stuff kind of falls away yeah and i had one relationship i don't know if we ever talked about it where we went through a very very painful difficult time and a very crazy painful final ending to the relationship and now when I reflect back on it, I really just feel into the love in my heart. That that person actually lives in my heart, along with all the others who I've been in relationship with.
1: That is so lovely, Tonio. And, you know, it's like I've never even considered this. Here's my imagination getting flared up for a second here, which is like, what if I had all of those old lovers in kind of a... Who knows what sort of setting this is, of course, internally in my imagination. And like, you know, like having them all there in this imagination, like it could be like in the dream world, for instance, and being able to express my gratitude for whatever they did to help with my own growth and also for their presence in my life because of that.
0: Well, that's what I experienced with them without the words, really. Yeah, I'm just. Directly experiencing this tremendous love and appreciation for what was, or what what actually is, for what actually is now here, that arose out of all of that. Yeah, and it includes all of what happened back in the past, all of the difficult, challenging, and even excruciatingly painful and hellacious experiences that were part of it.
1: Yeah, I know. I kind of cringed when I look backwards at some of my old behaviors and say like how certain things played out, cringing at, at my part of the dance. And
0: I do that too. Yeah. yeah,
1: that's the humanness of it all. And at the same time, it's like, well, you know, it, it's who I was then doesn't necessarily mean it's who who I am now.
0: And it doesn't even necessarily mean that there was anything wrong with us then. It's just that that's where we were at that moment. Yeah, exactly. And from the soul perspective, isn't its perspective that wherever we are and whatever is happening is perfect right now?
1: Yes. Yes, exactly.
0: I think this is maybe
1: part of that self-care piece. You know, like I've had teachers in the past that say, oh, Rick, you know, be gentle with yourself you know, I can be much more gentle with myself. And there's a softening that takes place, that I can look back on some of these experiences. And yes, there's the cringing there, but also a softening of like, but this was just part of this wild ride. And I needed to do that to get to where I am
0: today. Mm -hmm. And for me, that cringing, it's something for me to embody, to be fully present with to experience the cringe and to experience, fully experience the memory out of which the cringe emerged and to stay with it, no matter how cringy and uncomfortable it is. And when I do that, the more I do it, it doesn't eliminate the cringe, but it begins, or wherever I am in the evolution of this kind of alchemical transformation it begins or it it shifts toward a kind of delicious feeling it's sort of like you know the experience of lead is like pain and suffering the heaviness of of the experience of carrying around this this shameful or something like that memory of my own behavior whereas as it's gradually turned into gold it becomes lighter and more wonderful. And yet the memory, you know, the actual experience from which all of that arises out of remains the same.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, and to be specific in my life, Tonio, in this very place you're talking about, I had this old behavior like in my 20s and 30s, maybe even my 40s too, that when things got difficult in a relationship because I didn't have the communication skills, I didn't have the personal tools, things like that, I would just shut down and and not even talk for like a day or two, that kind of thing. and. I can look back at that now and say, oh, God, how dysfunctional that was, because I wasn't, you know, saying how I because I couldn't recognize how I was feeling, even though I could feel it. I didn't have the words and didn't think like it would be acceptable to even say any of that stuff. At the same time, now I can look back and go, oh, well, there's that wonderful solitude that I was almost bathing in at the time, because that's where I could at least find some safety and security in that particular moment, even in my pure dysfunction. And so there's that softening that's taking place with the cringing. And so I can I can still kind of tenderly, like, and I've done this exercise too. I, I, this was something I learned through therapy that, you know, I had this ability and I think I still probably do when I was a kid, but also as I got older, I could go into a room and it could be like 100 people, like a workshop, something like that, 100, 200, 300 people. And in less than a couple seconds, I would already some part of me knew exactly who the most emotionally unavailable women were in that room. It was this wild intuition thing and and I still see it happening inside of me and I learned this from a therapist I had here in Taos and so now I can put my arm around this younger aspect of myself because there was that younger aspect that was trying to get my mother's love as a little kid and yet, Emotional availability was just not part of her thing and that's how she was brought up. There's no shame or blame or anything like that. So anyhow, the wires got all crossed way back then. Now, when it happens, I can put my arm, you know, metaphorically around this younger part of myself and say, thank you so much for the information, but I just wanna remind you once again, I'm not gonna let you run the show like you used to in the past. And so we can continue on together in this process and it's not like an either or kind of thing it's like well now actually we're integrating the whole thing love the information and i can still make adult decisions now rather than decisions based on childhood wounds
0: right and instead of like walking into a room and recognizing your mother in yes in in certain mirrors yes <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly it <laughs> instead of doing that it's like and in addition to that also in a knee-jerk way being drawn to them for the self-inflicted punishment or as a friend of mine likes to say exquisite self-crucifixion <laughs> instead of that just go oh yeah i recognize them yeah and then turn and, and look for something more enjoyable <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I think and we've talked about this before. There's that thing I think as we get older, and it's this is like one of those invaluable tools. How do we create enough distance in our lives? And I think that's part of like what's behind a lot of these essays in Luminescence of the Ordinary, was that as I grew up, I was kind of the third lost child there. And so I was I became the observer in in many ways. And now the observation capacity has been sort of transfigured to this other place of for me understanding things is the way that i get comfortable with the world you know because there i have still have all my judgments and all that kind of stuff but if i can start to understand whatever's happening then i can be more comfortable with it and it really helps in this whole process Of, you know, like if I have some distance and that was like I was saying, I can have the distance to notice this other aspect of myself reacting to, you know, who might potentially be an emotionally unavailable woman. And I can then, you know, embrace that part. Normally, I think, you know, it's again back to that bumper sticker. Don't believe everything you think. How do we have enough distance to say, oh, well, I'm just making up a story here, or this is just a bunch of baloney, whatever's happening here. That having that distance is such an invaluable tool in terms of being able to work through a lot of these crazy things that show up. Mm-hmm. So I have a poem, which is from Joy Harjo, and it's called The Creation Story. I'm not afraid of love or its consequence of light. It's not easy to say this or anything when my entrails dangle between paradise and fear. I'm ashamed I never had the words to carry a friend from her death to the stars correctly, or the words to keep my people safe from drought or gunshot. The stars were created by words are circling over this house formed of calcium, of blood. This house in danger of being torn apart by stones of fear. If these words can do anything, if these songs can do anything, I say, bless this house with stars.
0: Transfix us with love. How does that feel? That feels like a good place to end on.
1: It sounds good to me too, Tony. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. I get, you know, it's like that thing about when I play with a nine-year-old friend, we just lose all sense of time is lost. And talking to you is like that same loss of time, death disappears, and it just feels so good to be alive.
0: So thank you so much. And thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And until next time, enjoy it all. (laughs) Take care of yourself so you can take care of those around you. You too, my friend. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Rick Halterman is author of Curriculum of the Soul, and his new book is Luminescence of the Ordinary.